Welcome back to the Hemming Brainiac List, the best podcast you've ever heard. Talking about chapter 80, is she really going to vanish, though, quote-unquote vanish? She vanished into the vast anonymous mass of the population of London? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I don't want to get my hopes up, because that's not the last we've seen of Mildred. That would be bloody excellent, though, if it was. Maybe something else can happen in this book. I really thought this was going to be sort of like a coming-of-age slash, you know, autobiographical account of his sort of young man's life. But, um, I don't know, it's just sort of turned into a story about this one particular failing romance. Adrathea said, I enjoy the opening line, paragraph, sorry, of this chapter, It gives me a sense of passing time and a glimpse into the lives of people around Philip. Each failed medical student could be an interesting minor character in Philip's life. Everyone is on their own journey to figure out where they belong in the world. As for Griffiths, I have the feeling that he never realised he was going to upset Philip so badly. Griffiths only wanted a weekend fling with Mildred. He may have thought that Philip treats relationships just as casually as he does and that Philip didn't care for Mildred any more than he did quite possible but then I think Philip made it pretty clear how much he was into Mildred uh, Swim said the moment she said Griffiths probably did think that the author tells us that Philip presents a very calm cool dispassionate exterior to the world and he is governed by reason true he does try to play it very cool so maybe but still Griffiths knew they were dating you know that's enough to be uh, to not want to step on any toes at least it should be I reckon um, anyway that's it that's the conversation let's move quickly to the next chapter it's a long-ish chapter so I'm happy to skim through this one here we go it's called chapter 81 it goes like this at the beginning of winter of sorry of the at the beginning of the winter session Philip became an outpatient clerk winter session uh, there were three assistant physicians who took out patients, two days a week each, and Philip put his name down for Dr. Tyrell. He was popular with the students, and there was some competition to be his clerk. Dr. Tyrell was a tall, thin man of forty of 35, with a very small head, red hair, cut short, and prominent blue eyes. His face was bright scarlet. He talked well, in a pleasant voice, and was fond of a little joke, and treated the world lightly. He was a successful man, with a large consulting practice and a knighthood in prospect. From commerce with students and poor people, he had the patronising air, and the, and from dealing always with the sick, he had the healthy man's jovial condescension, which some consultants achieve as the professional manner. He made the patient feel like a boy confronted by a jolly schoolmaster. His illness was an absurd piece of naughtiness which amused rather than irritated. The student was supposed to attend in the outpatient's room every day, see cases and pick up what information he could. But on the days on which he clerked, his duties were a little more definite. At that time, the outpatient's department at St Luke's consisted of three rooms leading into one another and a large dark waiting room with massive pillars of masonry and long benches. Here the patients waited after having been given their letters at midday, and the long rows of them bottles of gallipots in hand, some tattered and some dirty, others decent enough. Sitting in the dimness, men and women of all ages, children, gave one an impression, which was weird and horrible. They suggested the grim drawings of Dormier. 
All the rooms were painted alike in salmon colour, with a high dado of maroon, and there was in them an odour of disinfectants mingling as the afternoon wore on with the crude stench of humanity. The first room was the largest, and in the middle of it were the table and an office chair for the physician. On each side of this were two smaller tables, a littler one, a little lower, sorry. At one of these sat the house physician, and at the other the clerk who took the book for the day. This was a large volume in which were written down the name, age, sex, profession and of the patient and the diagnosis of his disease. At half past one the house physician came in, rang the bell and told the porter to send in the old patients. There were always a good many of these and it was necessary to get through as many of them as possible before Dr Tyrell came at two. The HP with whom Philip came in contact with, a dapper little man, was excessively conscious of his importance. He treated the clerks with condescension and patently resented the familiarity of older students who had been his contemporaries and did not use him with the respect he felt his present position demanded. He said about the cases. A clerk helped him, the patients streamed in, the men came first, chronic bronchitis, a nasty aching cough was what they chiefly suffered from. One went to the HP, the other to the clerk, handing in their letters. If they were going on well, the words Rep 14 were written on them, and they went to the dispensary with their bottles or gallipots in order to have medicine given to them for 14 days more. Some old stages held back so they might so that they might be seen by the physician himself, but they seldom succeeded in this, and only three or four, whose conditions seemed to demand his attention, were kept. Dr Tyrell came in with his quick movements and breezy manner. He reminded one slightly of a clown leaping into the arena of a circus with the cry, Here we are again. His air seemed to indicate, What's all this nonsense about being ill? I'll soon put that right. He took his seat, asked if there were any old patients for him to see, rapidly passed them in review, looking at them with shrewd eyes as he discussed their symptoms, cracked a joke, at which all the clerks laughed heartily, with the HP, who laughed heartily too, but with an air as if he thought it was rather impudent for the clerks to laugh, remarked that it was a fine day, or a hot one, and rang the bell for the porter to show in the new patients. They came in one by one and walked up to the table at which sat Dr Tyrell. They were old men and young men and middle-aged men, mostly of the labouring class, dock labourers, draymen, factory hands, barmen. But some, neatly dressed, were of a station which was obviously superior, shop assistants, clerks and the like. Dr Tyrell looked at these with suspicion. Sometimes they put on shabby clothes in order to pretend they were poor, but he had a keen eye to prevent what he regarded as fraud, and sometimes refused to see people who he thought could pay well for medical attendance. Women were the worst offenders, and they managed to manage the things more clumsily. They would wear a cloak and a skirt, which were almost in rags, and neglect to take the rings off their fingers. If you can afford to wear jewellery, you can afford a doctor. A hospital is a charitable institution, said Dr Tyrell. He handed back the letter and called for the next case. But I've got my letter. I don't care a hang about your letter. You get out. You've got no business to come and steal the time which is wanted by the really poor. The patient retired sulkily with an angry scowl. She'll probably write a letter to the papers on the gross mismanagement of the London hospitals, said Dr Tyrell with a smile. 
as he took the next paper and gave the patient one of his shrewd glances. <coughs> Excuse me. Most of them were under the impression that the hospital was an institution of the state for which they paid out of the rates and took the attendance they received as a right they could claim. They imagined the physician who gave them his time was heavily paid. Dr. Tyrell gave each of his clerks a case to examine. The clerk took the patient into one of his inner rooms. They were smaller and each had a couch in it covered with black horsehair. He asked his patient a variety of questions, examined his lungs, his heart and his liver, made notes of the fact on the hospital letter, formed in his own mind some idea of the diagnosis and then waited for Dr. Tyrell to come in. This he did, followed by a small crowd of students. When he had finished the men, the clerk read out what they had learned. The physician asked him one or two questions and examined the patient himself. If there was anything interesting to hear, students applied their stethoscope. He would see a man with two or three to the chest and two perhaps to his back, while others waited impatiently to listen. The patient stood among them, a little embarrassed, but not altogether displeased to find himself the centre of attention. He listened confusedly while Dr. Tyrell discoursed glibly in on the case. Two or three students listened again to recognise the number, the murmur, or the crepitation, which the physician had described, and then the man was told to put on his clothes. When the various cases had been examined, Dr. Tyrell went back into the large room and sat down again at his desk. He asked any student who happened to be standing near him what he would prescribe for a patient he had just seen. The student mentioned one or two drugs. Would you? said Dr. Tyrell. Well, that's original at all events. I don't think we'll be rash. It's always made the students laugh, and with a twinkle of amusement at his own bright humour, the physician prescribed some other drug than that which the student had suggested. When they were two cases of, extract, of exactly the same sort, and the student proposed the treatment which the physician had ordered for the first, Dr. Tyrell exercised considerable ingenuity in thinking of something else, sometimes knowing that in the dispensary they were were worked off their legs and preferred to give the medicines which they already had. The good hospital mixtures which had been found by the experience of years to answer their purpose so well, he amused himself by writing an elaborate prescription. We'll give the dispenser something to do. If we go on prescribing mist, Alb, he'll lose his cunning. The students laughed and the doctor gave them a circular glance of enjoyment in his joke. Then he touched the bell, and when the porter poked his head in, he said, Old women, please. He leaned back in his chair, chatting with the HP while the porter herded along the old patients. They came in strings of anemic girls with large fringes and pallid lips who could not digest their bad, insufficient food. Old ladies, fat and thin, aged prematurely by frequent confinements, with winter coughs, women with this, that, or the other, the matter with them. Dr. Tyrell and his house physician got through them quickly. Time was getting on, and the air in the small room was growing more sickly. The physician looked at his watch. Are there many new women today, he asked. A good few, I think, said the HP. We'd better have them in. You can go on with the old ones. They entered. With the men, the most common ailments were due to the excessive use of alcohol, but with the women they were due to defective nourishment. By about six o'clock they were finished. Philip, exhausted by standing all the time, by the bad air and by the attention he had given, strolled over with his fellow clerks to the medical school to have tea. He found the work of absorbing interest. 
There was humanity there in the rough, the materials the artist worked on. To Philip felt, and Philip felt a curious thrill when it occurred to him that he was in the position of the artist, and the patients were like clay in his hands. He remembered with an amusing shrug of the shoulders his life in Paris, absorbed in colour, tone, values, heaven knows what, with the air of producing beautiful things, the directness of contact with men and women gave a thrill of power which he had never known. He found an endless excitement in looking at their faces and hearing them speak. They came in each with his peculiarity, some shuffling uncouthly, some with a little trip, others with heavy, slow tread, some shyly. Often you could guess their trades by the look of them. You learnt in what way to put your questions so that they should be understood, you discovered on what subjects nearly all lied, and by what inquiries you could extort the truth notwithstanding. You saw the different way people took the same things. The diagnosis of dangerous illness would be accepted by one with a laugh and a joke, by another with dumb despair. Philip found that he was less shy with these people than he had ever been with others. He felt not exactly sympathy, for sympathy suggests condescension, but he felt at home with them. He found that he was able to put them at their ease, and when he had been given a case to find out what he could do about it, it seemed to him that the patient delivered himself into his hands with a peculiar confidence. Perhaps, he thought to himself with a smile, perhaps I'm cut out to be a doctor. It would be rather a lark if I'd hit upon the one thing I'm fit for. It seemed to Philip that he, alone of the clerks, saw the dramatic interest of those afternoons to the others, Others, men and women, were only cases, good if they were complicated, tiresome if obvious. They heard murmurs and were astonished at abnormal livers. An unexpected sound in the lungs gave them something to talk about, but to Philip there was much more. He found an interest in just looking at them. In the shape of their heads and their hands, in the look of their eyes and the length of their noses, you saw in that room human nature taken by surprise, and often the mask of custom was torn off rudely, showing you the soul all raw. Sometimes you saw an untaught stoicism, which was profoundly moving. Once Philip saw a man rough and illiterate, told his case was hopeless and self-controlled himself, he wondered at the splendid instinct which forced the fellow to keep a stiff upper lip before strangers. But was it possible for him to be brave when he was by himself face to face with his soul, or would he then surrender to despair? Sometimes there was tragedy. Once a young woman brought her sister to be examined, a girl of eighteen with delicate features and large blue eyes, fair hair that sparkled with gold when a ray of autumn sunshine touched it for a moment, and a skin of amazing beauty. The student's eyes went to her with little smiles. They did not often see a pretty girl in these dingy rooms. The older woman gave the family history. Father and mother had died of phthisis, a brother and a sister, these two were the only ones left. The girl had been coughing lately and losing weight. She took off her blouse and the skin of her neck was like milk. Dr. Tyrell examined her quickly with his usual rapid method. He told two or three of his clerks to apply their stethoscopes to a place he indicated with his finger, and then she was allowed to dress. The sister was standing a little apart, and she spoke to him in a low voice so that the girl could not hear. Her voice trembled with fear. She hasn't got it, Doctor, has she? I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. She was the last one. When she goes, I shan't have anybody. She began to cry with the doctor. While the doctor looked at her gravely, he thought she too had the type. She would not make old bones either. The girl turned round and saw her sister's tears. She understood what they meant. The colour fled from her lovely face and tears fell down her cheeks. The two stood for a minute or two, crying silently, and then all the older 
forgetting the indifferent crowd that watched them, went up to her, took her in her arms and rocked her gently to and fro as if they, she were a baby. When they were gone, a student asked, How long do you think she'll last, sir? Dr. Tarwell shrugged, shrugged his shoulders. Her brother and sister died within three months of the first symptoms. She'll do the same. If they were rich, one might do something. You can't tell these people to go to St. Moritz. Nothing can be done for them. Once a man who was strong and in all the power of his manhood came because a persistent aching troubled him and his club foot did not seem to do him any good and the verdict for him too was death. Not the inevitable death that horrified and yet was tolerable because science was helpless before it but the death which was inevitable because the man was a little wheel in the great machine of a complex civilization and had as little power of changing the circumstances as an automaton. Complete rest was his only chance. The physician did not ask impossibilities. You ought to get some very much lighter job. There ain't no light jobs in my business. Well, if you go on like this, you'll kill yourself. You're very ill. Do you mean to say I'm going to die? I shouldn't like to say that, but you're certainly unfit for hard work. If I don't work, who's to keep the wife and the kids? Dr. Tyrell shrugged his shoulders. The dilemma had been presented to him hundreds of times. Time was pressing and there were many patients to see. Well, I'll give you some medicine and you can come back in a week and tell me how you're getting on. The man took his letter and with this useless prescription written upon it and walked out. The doctor might say what he liked. He did not feel so bad that he could not go on working. He had a good job and could not afford to throw it away. I'll give him a year, said Dr. Tyrell. Sometimes there was comedy, now and then a flash of cockney humour, now and then some old lady, a ch character such as Charles Dickens might have drawn, would amuse them by a garrulous oddities. Once a woman came who was a member of the ballet at a famous music hall. She looked 50 but gave her age as 28. She was outrageously painted and ogled the students impudently with large black eyes. Her smiles were grossly alluring. She had abundant self-confidence and treated Dr. Tyrell vastly amused with the easy familiarity with which she might have used an intoxicated admirer. She had chronic bronchitis and told him it hindered her in the exercise of her profession. I don't know why I should have such a thing. Upon my word, I don't. I've never had a day's illness in my life. You've only got to look at me to know that. She rolled her eyes round the young men with a long sweep of her painted eyelashes and flashed her yellow teeth at them. She spoke with a cockney accent but with an affectation of refinement which made every word a feast of fun. <clears throat> it was... It's what they call a winter cough, answered Dr. Tyrell gravely. A great many middle-aged women have it. Well, I never. That is a nice thing to say to a lady. No one ever called me middle-aged before. She opened her eyes very wide and cocked her head on one side, looked at him with indescribable archness. That is the disadvantage of our profession, said he. It forces us sometimes to be ungallant. She took the prescription and gave him one last luscious smile. You will come and see me dance, dearie, won't you? I will indeed. He rang the bell for the next case. I'm glad you gentlemen were here to protect me. But on the whole, the impression was neither of tragedy nor of comedy. There was no describing it. It was manifold and various. There were tears and laughter, happiness and woe. It was tedious and interesting and indifferent. It was as you saw it. It was a tumultuous and passionate. It was grave. It was sad. It was comic. It was trivial. It was simple and complex. Joy was there and despair. The love of mothers for their children and of men for their women. Lust trailed itself through the rooms with leaden feet, punishing the guilty and the innocent, helpless wives and wretched children. Drink seized men and women and costs its inevitable price. 
death sighed in these rooms in the beginning of life, filling some poor girl with terror and shame who diagnosed, who was diagnosed there. There was neither good nor bad there. There were just facts. It was life. All right, there you go. There's a chapter for you. It was a hospital. Let me shorten that down by about 15 minutes. What you've just had is a hospital described to you. Uh, have your say about this hospital over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.